Hey everybody, Charlie Epstein here at the 401k Coach and Killing Retirement. This is the show that breaks down the old paradigm of retirement and replaces it with a new shift, helping people like you to create a life that you love to do, something that you're passionate about. You know, I'm just fascinated by, when you think about today in America, this notion of retirement that we have is really antiquated. People work till 60, 62, 66, or 70, they retire. Maybe they get a pension, their social security, and then suddenly life is supposed to turn out. And I just think that's a broken model. And I'm fascinated by people in this world who are passionate about what they do every day from the day they get up till the day they go back to sleep till the day they stop. And work for them is passion. And it's not about ever retiring from what they love to do. Artists do it. Musicians do it. Actors do it. And people like my guest today, Dave Sanderson, is, as you're going to hear, has tapped into this notion of doing what you love to do starting now and keep getting better at what you're really passionate about. So what we're doing here at Killing Retirement is really trying to open up the world to you, to these new ideas, these new concepts, this new way of living into this ever abundant and expanding world that we are all privy to now what with technology. I mean, if you think about it, knowledge, every bit of knowledge today is at your fingertips. It's just available to you. So I'm so excited today on the show. We have an amazing guest, somebody who I think you'll hear has truly embraced life and living your dreams. But I think that wouldn't have all happened or it could have possibly been cut short, disastrously short. On January 15, 2009, Flight 1549, which was headed for Charlotte, North Carolina, never made it to its destination. Instead, it wound up in the Hudson River. It's called the Miracle on the Hudson because all 155 passengers of that flight and crew survived. And our guest today is Dave Sanderson, one of those survivors. He's here with us today to talk about this experience and what you can apply to your own life in times of crisis. Dave, I appreciate your being on board. Can you hear me? Yes, Charlie. Thank you for having me today. Excited to be with you. I'm just so excited about that. Now, this was a U.S. Air flight, right? That's correct. U.S. Airways flight 1549. Yeah, my first wife was a flight attendant for 21 years with U.S. Air. God bless her. Interesting. Interesting. So prior to this event, though, tell me about what were you doing? What were you focused on in life? What had your attention? Yeah, thank you for that question, because right before the plane crash, I was working in corporate America for a company by the name of Oracle. I was a head of sales area for consumer packaged goods in the southeast United States. So I was traveling and uh, sort of modeling what my dad's life was on the road, trying to make money for your family, do the right thing. In addition, I was also the head of security for a gentleman named Tony Robbins. So on my weekends and time off, I would be traveling with him and helping support his mission. So... You know, for those uh, 28 years before that, I was doing those kinds of things. So I was heads down trying to do the right thing, make as much money as I possibly could. And I think what happened on January 15, 2009 sort of uh, was a wake-up call for me. So I just want to make sure I, I get this right, especially for our listeners. This is because there's sort of a dichotomy of what I heard you just say. So you were modeling your dad's. You know, we, I talk here at Killing Retirement that people have myths about money and people don't examine their myths about money. And it sounds like you may have had several of those myths. You're modeling your dad and your dad's life and trying to 
make money, be a good provider if you're married. Yet at the same time, you were around one of the most motivational, inspirational, Tony Robbins. In 1988, I wanted to do stand-up in New York City. I'm also uh, still have my union card. And Tony had just come out with his 30 days, follow my, I don't even remember the name of it. Personal right? power. What was it? Personal power. Yeah, personal power. And I did his 30-day personal power for one reason, to finally do stand-up. And I did. I uh, started doing stand-up at Stand Up New York when Jon Stewart was cutting his chops. So that's interesting that you were sort of still caught in the myths of your father's life, yet you were around somebody who's all about a bigger future. Tell me about that. Thank you for that. Yes, I, you know, I never thought that I was modeling my father's life until I sort of looked back in perspective and looking at you know, what my, my father did. I mean, he traveled all the time. He made a decent income. We always had what we needed, and uh, he was an achiever. And so as I look back, I was sort of following that path, even though I didn't think I was following that path. But at the same time, I wanted more. I wanted to be a leader and do those things. And I was a salesperson. So I started with Tony back in 1994. And then uh, he uh, so kind of asked me to be on his security team. And I grew through those ranks. And and being around him, he was always, Charlie, every time I pick him up at the airport or the helipad, the first question he said, he always asked me, are you still working for that company? You need to, <laughs> you need to go out on your own and do your own thing. And I always gave him excuses. And, you know, of course, he's not a good guy to give excuses to. He holds you accountable. So it got to a point where he was always in my grill about, you know, when are you going to start doing things for yourself and start be really living your life? So as things were going progressing in 2009, of course, the economy wasn't going very well, but I was still doing pretty well financially. But, you know, after the plane crash, he had an event in Secaucus, New Jersey, and this is where it sort of turned. And I was still head of security. And I I showed up, and before I got there, I talked to his executive assistant. And said, "By the way, I probably have more media here than Tony." And she's laughing, and it was true. I had I had CBS follow me the entire weekend. Wow! And, and that's when sort of he and I sort of had these conversations. He was a great coach. That night of the plane crash, he called. And he's the only person that called me in the hospital that night, and he gave me full reign to call him and coached me on how to how things were going to sort of proceed. So when the time came, he was my biggest advocate to go out on my own. But I still needed to figure out how they're going to pay for college, retirement, you know, family, all this stuff. And it took me a few years to figure that out. But once my wife gave me the thumbs up, there was no doubt that I was going to go out on my own. And candidly, you know, I don't think I'll ever retire. I love what I'm doing. I got a passion. I'm serving. And, and at this point, I think Tony, with everything he taught, you know, God's delays are not God's denials. It just took me a little bit of time to figure this out. And all of a sudden, I'm on a whole different path. And now I'm serving and have a passion for what I do. Yeah, I like to say God moves in mysterious ways, and if you leave a vacuum there, she'll fill it, right? Most definitely. You know, if you don't fill it first. So take us back. I was really looking forward to having this conversation with you and really looking forward to understanding. There you were. There was another flight. You got on the plane. You're flying along. And then there had to be that moment when you knew and the other passengers knew Something's not right. There was a threshold moment, and it wasn't when the birds hit. Because at that point, I think myself and a lot of other people thought, okay, he's going back to the airport to get another plane. But when he said his famous words, brace for impact, that's when I think myself and everybody else knew that this was pretty, could be a pretty dire situation. And that was my threshold moment where I got to tell people, everything that I learned and everything I trained for started coming into play. And 
And the one thing you learn, Charlie, when you hit that threshold moment, the one only thing really sometimes you can control is your mind and how you respond. And that's, uh, I think, all the training that I had with Tony and all the things that I learned, that's when all of it started coming together for me is how was I going to manage my state and how was I going to respond to give myself and hopefully the other, some other people around me the best opportunity to survive. So what was going through your mind and your heart right after those words registered? Well, first thing that I did was I prayed because at that point I knew it was a pretty, pretty tough situation. So I prayed initially. But then I started I had to put my game plan together very quickly. And my first part of my game plan is if I did die, which looked like it, well, I was going to probably not make it, I wanted ID on me. So I put my wallet down my pants. So if they, if they found my body, at least they could know who I was. Then my game, start putting my game plan together. And, you know, it's only about 70 seconds between crossing the George Washington Bridge and impact on the river. So it didn't give you much time, but that minute or so was the longest minute of my life because I put my plan together. So, you know, if, if I die, at least I'm going to end up someplace better. If I live, I got to give myself the proper chance to get out. And Canley, at that point, Charlie, I didn't even think about the water coming in. I thought of, I was more concerned about fire on than water. Right. And, you know, when we didn't have fire, the horse water came in immediately. And so that was a whole different game plan. So I had to put that, my initial game plan out the door, come up with another game plan as I was trying to figure out how I was going to get out of the plane. So, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that Tony's taught me, and I, I talked about the last week in the blog, is about the skill of resourcefulness. That's, that's probably the key skill people need to have today in life is resourcefulness and being able to play, uh, do these kind of things very quick on the run. So that's what sort of that last minute was like. It was I have to say, I tell people, I had more clarity in that last moment when we crossed over the bridge for impact than I probably had in my entire life. And what I mean by that is I saw things in my life that I hadn't seen for 40, 50 years that were so clear. It was I could recollect people's names, faces, and that last moment for impact, it was like, I just hope my wife pays the mortgage off. <laughs> that was our big, my biggest thing was, you know, I, we made a goal right when we first married to pay this mortgage off. And we never had that be able to do it. But now, if I died, and she's going to have enough money to pay the thing off, please pay the damn thing off. You know? Wow, that was your father talking. You and I will have yep. to talk about why you never want to pay your mortgage off. But that's that's okay. for another day. We'll do that. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear that strategy because that's not the strategy that I've been taught. I know. See, that's, uh, by the way, we have these top 10 myths of money. And the first one is my house will be paid off when I retire. And that's probably the worst financial thing you could do. But that's where Dave Ramsey and I and Tony part ways. But at any rate. What I'm really fascinated about now for me and actually for our listeners is you had this moment where everything came rushing and you didn't die, right? The plane hit the water. It hit a hard impact about 100, 120 miles an hour, roughly somewhere in that range when it hit. And then did you open your eyes and go, oh my God, we're still here. I'm here. That's exactly what I looked out the window. I saw a light. I'm like, I made it. But then the next thought was I didn't because that's when water started entering the plane from the bottom and the back of the plane because someone actually did listen to the flight crew, went to that closest exit behind you, and they'll try to open up that door. Now water's coming in from both angles. Yeah. So water's now, I'm, in the, I'm towards the back of the plane. I was in 15A. Water was anywhere from ankle to knee deep to waist deep. Mine was more about waist deep. So, man, 36 degree water's rushing in. So the next game plan was, okay, I made the crash. Now I may not get out because I might drown. So... That's when things are really happening. And the term I've used in the media is controlled chaos, where things are happening so fast, but no one's sort of losing it. Everybody's sort of keeping their composure. But, man, things are rolling, and you still, you got to get with the program pretty quick. 
And so how long did it take since you were in, I bet you 15A, is it, an, is it a number you always try and get now? No, it's the one I've never sat out of again. I've never sat at that seat again. Okay. U.S. Airways or American, I think, appreciates that when I make my reservations. They, they sort of direct me other places. So that's superstition. That 15A is your one time, right? Yep, that's my one time. Got it. So there you are in 15A, you're on the smaller plane, and you're trying to navigate helping other people get out? Yeah, I, when I got up, you know, my game plan initially was when the water came in, get aisle up and get out. And I mean, that was exactly what I thought. But when I got to the aisle, that's when my whole day and probably the entire direction of what I was going to do changed. Because when I got to the aisle, it was my time to go. My mother, who had passed away in 1997, started talking to me in my head. And what I heard from her say is something I heard years before was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And I had to make it a choice of that. What was the right thing to do? And the right thing for me was... You take care of other people first. Yeah, I grew up in Boy Scouts and athletics and sports where it was always about the guys and always about the team. So, you know, that's why I waited in the back of the plane to make sure we got everybody out. And then that's when I started my, making my way out. And by that time, the bins had broken open because of the impact. The luggage is floating out. Water's waist deep. It's dark on the back of the plane because it's roughly 345 on a you know, middle, middle winter day. And the back of the plane is already submerged. Wow. So, you know, you're making your way out, but you hit something. So every time you hit something, Canley, you have to write a look. It's like, is somebody still here? What did I hit? And so all the further I could get up was, you know, 10F, and that's when I started making my way out. But when I got there, I looked up, looked out the wing, and there was no room on the wing for me to go and no place on that boat. So that's why I stood in the plane waist deep in the 36-degree water for about 36 minutes or about uh, six minutes, and that's how I became the last passenger out of the plane. It wasn't by design. It was by when I got there, there was no place for me to go. Wow. What was the first thing you did when you got home? Well, when I got back to Charlotte, my family greeted me at the airport, which was it was pretty emotional. But that's, you know, then we had all the media you know, environment going on. So Canley wasn't, it was just, you know, pretty, pretty hectic. When I got home in the house, I think it's when everybody and my kids and my wife and I started realizing what really happened. I mean, she was getting inundated by media requests and my kids were too. So they, when we were in the house by ourselves. If people were starting to come to our house, you know, we're in there by ourselves, and we're like, man, I didn't realize how bad this thing was. And I started telling them what happened, and they started crying, and I started sort of getting emotional. And that was the moment I sort of realized, man, how lucky am I? I am really blessed not only to have the training that I had, but having a captain who knew who could, he could do and a bunch of passengers who pulled together as a team. That's why I talk about teamwork so much, Charlie, because if you can imagine 155 people who did not know each other, who care about each other, all of a sudden come together with a common mission and execute. In six minutes. That's one of the biggest business lessons I tell people is, is if you have a common mission and you get people focused on that mission, you can accomplish anything. It doesn't take a year to two years to do. You can get it done immediately. So you're into these lessons now that you discovered, right? Did they right. did they start coming to you over a period of time? When, when did, again, I got to go back to, I'm just so intrigued by the dichotomy between you living this miss of money life of your father's that you inherited and being around a Tony Robbins. And then you have this moment and you said it still took some time, but you now finally like the match was lit, right? You couldn't go back. There's no going back after that. You hit it on the first person really talked to me about that. That's exactly what happened. It was, I knew and what really happened. The, that moment really was the, the ignition was the following Sunday when I first spoke in public, and there was a lady that came up and who was elderly and 
you know, basically told me I was physical evidence that there was a God. And people heard it, and all of a sudden I knew at that point is when, where's my mission? There's now, I can't go back. I've got to do this, and I've got to go out and share whatever lessons, strategies, inspiration, motivation, whatever I can do, because this is where my pathway has been opened up. And I tell people, some, you know, God opens pathways to everybody, but a lot of people don't take them. And sometimes you never get a second chance to get that pathway. So when this was opened up to me, this sort of ignition you know, light came on, all the flashlight bulbs were flashing. That's when Tony was sort of coaching me on what to expect, how to respond, what I need to do to set myself up. Because the biggest thing my wife's concern was is she had so much certainty for our 20, so at that point, it was 25 years of marriage, you know, with health insurance and money, right? Was, she had what she needed. Now my husband wants to go off in the deep end and do this in, with no certainty at all. So it took me a couple of years to figure that strategy out. But once I did, it was uh, no going back. It was no going back. It, like Tony talks about, you burn the boats when you go into the island. You just burn them because you're going all in and family – you got to make it work, and the only way you can fail is if you quit, and that's not an option. So it's opened up a lot of avenues for me. I get to speak to a lot of leaders and, and talk to them. And so to answer your question another way is how all these lessons and strategies sort of came together. As I started speaking, things started coming back to me, and I, and I started speaking to other people on the plane, and I started talking to leaders like Sullenberger and other leaders, business leaders, who said, hey, have you ever thought about talking about this? So we talk about this, and all of a sudden, it was like opened up a whole other avenue for me. And so all of a sudden, that's how the book came about, Moments Matter, is because all of a sudden we realized after I did all these interviews and recorded everything, there were like 12 repeating patterns, repeating lessons that kept coming up over and over. And all of a sudden, I was the figured out that you know, all the moments in your life do matter because you never know when you've learned something maybe 30, 40 years ago, that one moment that you've learned something that you've used now can impact somebody else and they can take it on to their generation. That's how this whole thing came together. It's interesting. While you were talking, I keep coming back to this. I want to share it with you, but I have the title for your second book. I love it because we're in the process of doing that right now. Yeah. Well, you already know what it is. It's called Brace for Impact. Well, that's already been written. That was our first book. Oh, really? Yeah, I was I co-authored, I a contributing author to Brace for Impact, which was the first book I was involved with. Oh, I missed that one. Sorry. That's all right. We'll figure out something else out. You let yeah. me know when you figure that out for me. I'll be more than happy well, to jump in. I also love when you talk about threshold moments, right? Right. It's um, and everybody's got that threshold moment in life, and you right. know, what I call is that personal plane crash. If looking at this from the vernacular, is you never know when that, that threshold moment's going to happen. Whether it's a car crash, a health issue, a business situation that all of a sudden your your business is in, in challenge. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And what resources are you going to call upon? You able to to do that. A plane crash is a great sort of way to look at it because if the plane crashes, you know, it's out of control and you don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, you know, but you, all of a sudden, you, you hit it on the nose when you said not only is there no going back, but, you know, the messages are always there. Yep. It's a question of whether we're able to hear them, pick them up, you know, and carry them with us. But what is about the fear factor? You know, because I've been working in the financial services industry for 36 years. And what I bump against in conversations with people because of their myths of money, because of their fears of, you know, I got to make sure I have enough money for the kids, enough for college, enough for that. All those cut them off from the bigger possibility of the gift that they have. And my brother has been a headmaster of five Montessori schools. He taught in the public system. 
And about two years ago, I said to him, because we manage his money, I said, you're done. He said, what do you mean? He was 60. I said, you're done. I said, you have enough money, create a paycheck for life for you and Ann, your wife to do whatever you want to do. And he couldn't get it. You know, no matter what I put on paper, no matter what I cash flowed, no matter what I said. And finally, last Friday, he called me up and said, I'm driving away from the school. I'm looking in the rearview mirror. This is my last day. The enrollment's up. They got 110000 in cash. And I'm headed to my bigger future. And then Monday, he called me up and said, so today's my first day as an entrepreneur. What do I do first, coach? <laughs> Congratulations to him. Finally made that decision. Yeah. So even after this incredible moment, you said it still took two or three years. Right. So what was the... And you mentioned once your wife gave you the go-ahead, because it's interesting, my my sister-in-law said the same thing. She still teaches. She's like, go, be happy, do what you love. Was it that or was there something else that happened? Something else that happened. Good distinction where, you know, for those three years that I was still with Oracle, I was still making good money, and but I was being pulled 15 different directions. I was being asked to go to you know, speak at the Supreme Court or something, and, and people at Oracle couldn't understand what was going on, but I was still a top producer. So, you know, you're used to making that kind of money. You know, the fear of going backwards is is a big fear. And, and my wife's biggest fear, Canley, Charlie, was, I mean, we got to have health insurance. we got to have these kind of things because we still have kids. And how are we going to pay for college? So what happened was is it was, uh, I think it's the fourth anniversary of the plane crash. So it was about three and a half, four years this happened. CBS did a piece on me for Scott Pelling at CBS Evening News. But, and they followed me here from Charlotte to New York to New Jersey for about three days. And they put this thing on, you know, on the, on the night, that evening of January 15th. And all of a sudden, I get back about midnight after doing all these, you know, these media, you know, and speaking requests. And my wife calls me and said, hey, did Oracle call you today? Which is my company. I said, no, they haven't called me yet. They hadn't called me the night the plane crashed. They still haven't called me. And I said, well, did anybody call you? She says, no. And she goes, maybe it is time. Maybe it's time for you to go ahead and do this. And all of a sudden, I think what she got after she saw the piece was, a, I'm pretty good at this. B, I wouldn't ever put my my family in that kind of jeopardy. And C, he'll figure it out. Because I one thing I kept telling my wife is, you know, one thing I'm really good at is figuring things out. When stuff hits the fan, when threshold moments come, I'll figure a strategy out. And so we know we were going to go backwards financially for a while. We know we had some money saved, but you know we had those were in buckets for college educations. So you know we went backwards and financially, but. All of a sudden, you realize that uh, when you're when you're happy, all of a sudden money starts coming towards you. When you give, all of a sudden it comes back tenfold, and that's why all of a sudden what I realized is when she saw me after I I've helped to raise over eight million dollars for the Red Cross and opened up so many avenues to other places that you know you can always do better. And you know that, Charlie. We can always do better and do more. But when you when you have that point where you know we're going to be okay, that fear goes away. And I think that's where she got to, and that's where she's at now. Is they will figure this out. And, uh, you know, and if we get a little tough, eh, we might have to cut back a little bit. But we have buckets, and, and we'll figure it out. And I think that's when my wife realized that is after she saw that piece on CBS, um, how this thing was really coming together. So that's what, that was my, her threshold moment. That's great. Well, look, you're an entrepreneur now. There's no turning back. Nope. You burn, I burned the boats and I'm in. I'm all in. So I've got to figure, I got to figure it out, right? So <laughs> yeah. that's why I'm going to be talking to people like you who can give me some strategies on, because I'm never going to retire. I don't see it. I just don't see it because I enjoy what I'm doing, you know, and, and came I like 
what I'm doing. I love helping raise money. But, Canley, in the way this economy is right now, I don't know if there's ever enough money. You know? And uncertainty right now is people who have the most certainty in uncertain times are the ones who are going to win. So that's why I can handle certainty and live certainty to people. I'll be a winner in the big picture thing. So I'm really inquisitive in terms of this last part you said, you know, about kind of figuring these out because we're all on this journey, even Tony, you know, as good as he is, he never stops getting better. And I don't know him, and I'm just saying that from a distance. Yep. But as you're going through this process now, because you've, you know, most people don't have a defining moment like you had, right? It isn't that enormous. So most people, let's imagine the plane never landed on the water and it, it landed on the tarmac like you expected it to do. Right. So well, if that would have happened, I'd probably still work for the Oracle like I was doing and making good money. But still, you know, with Tony's push and the team that I had, Charlie, that's one thing I, have, I don't think I've ever talked about. The security team that I managed with Tony, all of them except for one I remember right, were CEOs or presidents of their own companies. They own their own companies. So they had the flexibility to be able to go out and do the things like I was doing with Tony, but I was still working for a company. So, you know, I was talking to those folks, my teammates, about how does one sort of move from corporate to entrepreneurship and sort of take that leap. And so they were coaching me even before that on, you know, okay, these kind of things you got to look at. And there's an opportunity out there for you someplace, but you got to go all in. Because one of the people I admire on my team was was Mike Milio. Mike when I met him, he was he sold windows here in Charlotte. And all of a sudden, he's on the team with me, and we're trying to figure this thing out together. But he took a leap of faith and started doing, you know, sort of trash and garbage, you know, removal things. And all of a sudden, he transitioned to doing that for, you know, commodities. And all of a sudden, he became a multimillionaire mm-hmm. because he took the leap and he went backwards. He said, listen, I took the leap. I had a child on the way. I had to make it happen because that's the one thing you learned, right? You have to make it a must. You can't make it should. You have to make it a must. Right. And that's why when I think I would have ended up somewhere, maybe not doing what I'm doing, would have been out of corporate life by now because I know that I had enough coaches and resources to push me and give me the strategies on how to do it. So are there specific skills that you've acquired or discovered that you had that now allow you, you know, one thing about entrepreneurial people and I discovered, for example, one of my passions I mentioned was, you know, the arts and theater and when I came into the financial business, I came in right out of college, but I was an economics major who lived in the theater. And I like to say that I really only had two choices in life. I could move to New York City and be a starving actor with all my starving friends, or I could move back to the booming metropolis of Springfield, Massachusetts. I had happened to have a mentor while I was in college in the insurance business, you know, put on a suit and tie, sell insurance, starve and have no friends. So I did that for six or seven years as I launched my business, but I always had in the back of my head, one day, someday, I'm going to pursue my acting passion. And so in 1988, I drove to an open call in Boston for all the regional summer theaters. And one theater hired me. It was the State Shakespearean Theater in Monmouth, Maine. And I'll never forget it. They were going to pay me a whopping $50 a week. I'm 31 years old, by the way, but they were going to give me room and board. And if you feed an actor, we'll go anywhere. So, but the average age of an intern in summer theater is 18 and 19. They're all college kids. But my schedule, Dave, that summer was I would work in my business Monday from 4 to 11 because that's when the theater is dark. Tuesday morning, I would drive to Maine. It was four and a half hours from where I am in Massachusetts. 
And I'd be there Tuesday through Sunday, six days a week for three months doing Shakespeare and repertory theater, building sets, making costumes, you know, everything an intern does, small parts, loving it. And at the end of that year, I only worked nine months in my business. I made 50000 more than I did the year before working 12 months. And I thought, that's interesting. I got to do that again. And so for the next 12 years, I would take three to five months off a year and pursue my acting passion, stand-up, improv, you know, got a commercial agent. And every year I took more time off. Guess what? I made more money. So I learned something. I'm going to ask you this question. And one of the skill sets that I learned is most people waste a lot of time doing what's important, but not what's significant and has the greatest engagement and impact. And I just gave up the important. I actually just hired people to do the important stuff and focused on, you know, what's unique about me and you. So I'm curious, as you're in this process now, what discoveries like that have you had for yourself, especially since you work for corporate America and Oracle, right? Right, most definitely. That's a great story. I was actually reading that about you, and it's, uh, it's, quite, a, it's quite a story. So I'll, I'll share just a few quick things. First, you mentioned something as you started, which I it happened to me, and I didn't realize how important it was until much later. It was when I had that mentor back in the early 90s who would give me those insights on if I wanted to do something, I would go to him because he had his 50 years of experience on it. And I didn't know until I first met him after a little bit after I met him is he, he drove he wore a flannel shirt and drove a pickup truck here in Charlotte. So I, mean, I thought he was just a good old boy, but he actually owned eighty theaters, movie theaters in North and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. He was a multimillionaire. He's like a Sam Walton of Charlotte. But he would just, you know, play. But he'd always give me those his lessons on on if how you if you want to be anything in life, put yourself around the peer group you want to be like and they'll elevate you. So that's what I started to do. I put myself in the right environments that people would hold me to a higher standard. So that was probably the first strategy that I did. Second, I look back to when I was managing hotel restaurants, and I had a chance to meet Bill Marriott. I was working for the Marriott Corporation at that point, managing one of his restaurants in Vienna, Virginia. And it was Christmas Eve, and all stuff was breaking loose. You know, we couldn't we didn't have enough people to wait on tables. It was just a mess. And all of a sudden, he and his entourage walk in doing their Christmas tour of stores, and he came up to me and said, can I help you? I'm like, look at him, do I have to make a decision? If I ask him to help me, it says I can't handle it. If I don't ask him to help me, then all, he's going to see all stuff breaking loose. So I said, yeah, I need somebody really to help me, sir, to help me go drop some fries. So he went out and put, put the apron on and started dropping fries and looked out to his guy. I said, guys, come on, start busting tables. And that taught me one of the biggest lessons of my life is I was never too big to remember where I came from, to do the basics, the basics, the basics. And that's where uh, I always started. That's why I started investing in self, number three, in personal development. Because I always want to improve myself. So if I took all these things together, Charlie, you know, putting myself in the right peer group, learning, always humbling myself, having the humility to prepare so I had the confidence to execute at that moment in time. And all of a sudden, I started investing in myself. That's how everything started coming together. So I would say, you know, that's how I got to where I am. And now, as I'm looking at moving this, I agree with you. One of the things I am working on is looking at focusing on what is most you say significant, I would say most important. These urgent stuff, I would probably, I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of because I want to be able to focus on how can I serve at the highest level, which then will help me with my income, of course, but also help me with my mission, which is how you know, how can I 
add even more value and enjoy the process. So that's probably about three. I'll I'll share this with you because I've worked with a coach for 23 years. I don't know if you've heard the name Dan Sullivan, the strategic coach. Most definitely. All right. So I've worked with Dan for 23 years. Now that you're an entrepreneur, go check out Strategic Coach because Dan talks about something called free days, focus days and buffer days. And that one little economic system I discovered during my acting career. So when I met Dan, I already knew what he was talking about, but he uses a concept called unique ability. And in life, there's what you're poor at, there's what you're good at, there's what you're excellent at, and then there's your unique ability. You know, Tony's is to walk up on that stage and hold the microphone. It's not to set the stage up or be the security, right? Right. Dan used to say that about Sinatra. You know, Sinatra didn't sell the tickets. He didn't clean the seats. He just got that thing in his hand and crooned and people loved it. So it's what you're discovering your unique ability now. And you got to delegate everything that you're poor at, good at, and excellent to people whose unique ability is what you're excellent, good, and poor at. That's a great distinction because I think that's what the strategy I'm trying to yeah. f- focus on right now. Because, Kaylee, you're right. It's I can never play at the highest level where I want to play at until I'm able, able to delegate. Yep. And, a, I, and I told I told my brother when he called me Monday and said, this is my first day of work, coach. He calls me coach. He says, what do I do first? I said, I want you to take a piece of paper. I want you to draw a line down the middle. On the left-hand side, I want you to write love to do. On the right-hand side, I want you to write hate to do. Take a stopwatch for three minutes, write down all the things you love to do. Do the same thing with all the things you hate to do. Then at the bottom, write down what should you get paid for all the things you love to do. Like that's your hourly rate or your speaking rate. And then what could you pay somebody to do all the things you hate to do that right now you're paying yourself $100 an hour or $300 at your rate? And I said, the first thing you do is go hire a virtual assistant. Go to elance.com or guru.com. And hire a virtual assistant to manage your calendar and make the calls and appointments. And you just freed yourself up probably 10, 15, 20 hours a week, things you hate to do, that you can pay somebody five or ten dollars an hour. So you can go make three, five, a thousand dollars an hour. Most definitely. The virtual assistant strategy is exactly the, uh, the approach that I'm taking. I think that's the right strategy to take. Yeah. Because I've already done the personal assistant and that's uh that worked, but Canley, it wasn't the most effective way to use resources. Well, it's a function of figuring out what you know what you need to do. But as you said, you're you're mastering the skill set, and I think it's amazing, you know, that you were able to crash your way out of your your history, right? Right. Yeah. So as we, we had as to burn the boat. huh, we had to burn the boat. You're exactly right. That's right. So as we as we uh, kind of wrap up here, as you sit here right now. You know, you're on a new runway and you're, you know, taking off in the direction of really embracing who you are in the matter and the impact that you can have in the engagement. What do you see next? What I really see next is, is elevating my where I'm going. I really want to take it more internationally. That's where I sort of see my next play because I have been moving more internationally. Yeah, really, really taking that, these messages and these lessons I've learned and really now digging deeper and being able to go into organizations and companies and really dig deep with their sales teams and their organizations and help them understand how to manage their state and how to use these kind of skills, sensory, sensory acuity skills that, that make them more effective in what they do, whatever they want to do in life. And I'm also passionate about helping people make the move like I did. I'm working with some people right now who want to get out of the corporate life and they want to know how I did it so quickly and so effectively. And there's a strategy behind that. So helping other people understand, you know, 
like I had to finally get a hit up across the head, that there's more to life than you know, going to get a paycheck. And that's where I'm really trying to focus my time and energy right now. And on the third level is helping to raise money for and non-for-profit funds. I think that's uh, a lot of people need help right now. So that's sort of three directions I'm taking. Well, Dave, I just really appreciate your sharing this conversation with me and, and our listeners. And I want to make sure that uh, we support you in just expanding your message and the impact that you have. So how can people find Dave Sanderson? Thank you. Thank you. My, my website, if they want to check that out, is davesandersonspeaks.com. That's where everything is sort of housed. But I spend time right now on social media and right now, Best way if you want to get a hold of me and see what I'm really doing is, of course, Facebook at Dave Sanderson Speaks and LinkedIn, which I'm starting to use that tool much more, Charlie. I've never used it as much as I have now, but it's a great tool for business people yep. under David Sanderson. And Tony has got me, he's pushing me to do Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Dave Sanderson, too. And I'm getting more proficient, and he's uh, coaching me on how to do that. So I would say that's what MJ's trying to do that with me, too. And I just said, you tweet away, baby. I'll tell you a funny story. One of my icons in business is Howard Schultz, you know, who founded and created Starbucks. And then Joe Dorison, who, you know, created Twitter. They were on, I think they were on Larry King this many, many years ago, because Joe also started a company called Square. You know, it's the little device you put on a phone, slide a credit card through. So they were on talking about how Starbucks was going to have Square available in all their stores. And Larry turns to Howard and said, you know, do you tweet? And Joe's sitting right next to him, and Howard says, I don't even know how to spell it. And the guy who started the company is sitting right there, partnering him with his other company, you know? So, well, like you said about you know, giving the stuff, focusing on when you're unique, I'm outsourcing my Twitter right now to somebody else because, Kaylee, they're much better at it than I am. So, yeah, exactly. That's why I have MJ here, too, as well. So, Dave, I, I just really want to thank you personally from uh, the bottom of my heart. Thank God that day that the light was shining in the right direction and there was a blessing on everybody on the plane, including yourself. And I know I don't, for our listeners who don't know, the movie about Flight 1549 is going to be coming out called, it's called Sully, right? Sully is coming out premiering on September 9th. Very honored. If my little piece gets in there, I'll be honored that happens. So. Yep. And Tom Hanks is playing Sully, the captain of the plane. And he was directing it. And Clint Eastwood is directing. This has been just amazing, wonderful, inspiring, insightful conversation. And I think the information that you were kind enough to share with our listeners will have enormous impact on if you're out there and you're listening to this, don't wait for your plane to land on the Hudson River, right? Moments matter, as Dave has said, and you need to create the impact that you want now in your life. So, if you want to learn more about what we're up to here, you can go to charlieepstein.com, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N.com. Click on the RSS feed to get our Killing Retirement podcast delivered to you each month. And of course, you can always reach out to me at cdepstein at the 401kcoach.com for answers about how you can kill retirement, how you can kill these myths of money that you have that are holding you back so you don't have to keep repeating history I'm Charlie Epstein. I'm a man on a mission to kill this notion of retirement in America, and I thank you all for listening. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you on the next podcast. 